Hi, I'm Mac. Hi, I'm Abigail. And I'm Jen. And this is Unsubs. the podcast where we recap, rate, and review all 324 episodes of Criminal Minds. And today we're covering Season 3, Episode 14, Damage. Uh, let's do some fun facts, and I have a fun fact that for once is not about my cat that I just got. Uh, start us off? Yeah! Okay, here's my fun fact. I I am wearing my my neighbor Totoro dress right now. It is a dress I bought from Torrid that has Totoro and then the little Totoros on it. So like the gray big Totoro, the blue middle-sized Totoro, and then the white Totoro, and they're holding leaves. And then there's all these plants and it's super fucking cute, but it's not like a professional work attire dress. So I I don't wear it to work and it's become kind of one of those lazing around home dresses where I don't have to put on a bra because, you know, I, I whenever I cannot wear a bra, I'm happiest, but it is super fucking cute and it it make me happy. You got to like the little things. Oh, and they, they got little sacks when they have the sacks full of nuts. It's fucking cute. Yeah. Okay, so that fun fact inspired me. Um, so um, as many of the people listening, if you've been listening recently, you know I'm in a Shadowcast production of Rocky Horror Picture Show now. Fuck yeah, um, you are. And yeah. you're, excuse me, you are starring. I, I, I am. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm playing Janet. Because of that, I've kind of been on a bit of a Tim Curry kick um, because I fucking love Tim Curry. Um, and that reminded me outside of, you know, being in Rocky Horror and then the Clue movie, which is also phenomenal. Um, he's in a, he, he does a lot of voice acting as many people know, especially after, you know, being wheel, you know, being limited to a wheelchair. He does a lot of voice acting and outside of narrating Peter Pan and Scarlet and the entire series of unfortunate events uh, audiobooks. He also is a voice actor in one of my favorite Hayao Miyazaki movies. Um, and it's it's a lesser known one and it is The Cat Returns. <gasps> Have you seen that? Yes, isn't Carrie Elwes the fucking sexy cat? And you're you're like, I feel weird that I want to bang this cat, but I want to have sex with this cat. But yes, it's weird. And Tim Curry voices the Cat King. Oh my god, what? <laughs> yeah, the like, how you doing, babe? That one, like, that's Tim Curry. Jen, have you seen this movie? I have not. It's it's on HBO and I I rewatched it for the first time like around New Year's last year um with my friend uh we were doing like a Netflix party situation cuz she was quarantining and we were watching it I hadn't seen it since I was a kid and I like that movie gets me so right 
I made my sister watch it, and then I made um, Diggs watch it, and it, I made my sister's boyfriend watch it. It is like that movie goes off the rails so fast, and you're sitting there, you're like, I'm not a furry. Cats aren't sexy, but then you're like, they cast Carrie Elwes. They knew exactly what the fuck they were doing. And it's literally just a cat. And you're like, why is this cat like making me feel special? This cat is making me feel seen right now. And like, of course, Anne Hathaway's character is there like, I kind of want to bang this cat. Like, (laughs) (laughs) We're here for Criminal Minds and Jen Jen needs to give us her fun fact. I think everybody should love Adele. I think that's like a universal experience. Um... Her album was coming out in November. She just did, she just did like an Instagram live where she like played a sample of her single, and it was like twenty seconds. And everybody on Twitter who was like, like listening and talking about it was like, "Wow, another hit!" She just keeps coming at it, but she's so funny because she's like really like an introverted person at heart. Like she doesn't like the attention. And I'm just like, well, if you don't want the attention, like, stop releasing so many good bobs. She's so pretty. She is. She's so gorgeous. I went to one of her, last time she was on tour, I got to go to her concert. And that was just, like, one of the best concerts I've ever been to. She's just so, like, she is better live than she is. Like, she's so good. Uh, we are in no way, shape, or form associated with Criminal Minds. Uh, we we just were fans, and we would like to be associated. Who's doing our rating criteria? Jen. I'll do it. Okay. Um, the rating criteria is as follows. Each episode has the potential to receive up to 100 points across each of these five categories. The first is criminal slash serial killer. Second, character development slash character arcs. Forensics and context is the next one. And then there's the script writing and lastly, background characters. You said that so much better than either of us have ever said it. (laughs) It's true though. (laughs) This is a really complicated episode uh, so Abby's going to do the main storyline and Jen is going to jump in with the other storyline and I will edit it together with magic so that it seems seamless. So we open in a house with a lot of shaky cam, blood and child screaming. And ah shit, that's not true. It's Rossi having a bad dream with some bad shining references. So we cut away and it's dinner. Um, It looks like, you know, two people have just had an elaborate meal. And it's Garcia's apartment and there is someone banging on her door. So we watch as she begrudgingly walks from the shower to open the door to an irate Rossi. He's upset because the files she got... Uh, he got from her, quote, don't have everything. And he berates her, and she's like, I was showering, can this wait until morning, etc. Like, very much trying to get him to leave. And then we see Xander, because I don't remember his name, but Xander from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it's Kevin, right? Um, Comes out, and he is naked. 
and it is very awkward and supposed to be funny, but that humor does not land for me, or maybe I'm just pretentious, um, because he's, like, covering his junk with a little towel. He says, quote, you left the middle of my back totally unloofed as he's coming out of the bathroom. <laughs> and, and I'm just like, oh, God, showering together, shower sex is probably my least favorite type of sex. It's just, it's so, un- I, you know, someone's going to be uncomfortable. We get to a conversation about that again later, too. So... Garcia is suddenly like, I know the fraternization between Brio departments is against, but Rossi, like, doesn't give a flying fuck and just interrupts and is like, it's the 20th anniversary of this crime. 20 years tomorrow, three children woke up and found their parents murdered. Whoever did this is still out there, and it's time they paid for it. And he just walks out like a boss. So we cut away and we see a stripper walking to her car and the bouncer slash security guard walks her like part way and then they have some bitching about bad tips that night and she arrives at her car. There is a random dude pissing nearby and he's all like, you dance good and she references that he only tipped her two dollars which is garbage. So he's, he's, you know, being, being trash and she pulls a knife on him and he walks away and she gets into her car and that's when she sees that there was a stuffed animal left on her dashboard. We cut back to the BAU and Garcia is having a meltdown over Rossi showing up and she spills that tea with JJ. And JJ is like, don't worry about it. And then they shit on showering with someone else, which I think means they just aren't good at it. What kind of fucking fancy ass showers are you in? The average home or apartment shower is just not suitable. I've had, I've, I've had intimate experiences in a like half bath shower in a Brooklyn apartment. And you can make things work. Okay, you can make them work, but were they good? Yeah, it was a good experience. It looked like Garcia was having a good time until Rossi showed up, so I don't think that's on... I think that's on Rossi. That's not on the shower. Blame Rossi, not the shower. The shower did nothing wrong. We cut away, and we now see uh, the same stripper from earlier, um, and we see that she was one of those three kids who was involved in the case that Rossi is really pressed about. She wakes up from the couch um, because of a nightmare, which is a flashback of finding her mother murdered, and her brother is sitting with her, and we find out that her brother got fired from work because he punched a guy. Apparently, she only made 53 bucks, so she's, quote, the worst stripper in the world, and she's like, and she says, to make more, you have to show more, and going topless is bad enough, which is, like, not entirely true, um... There are some strip clubs where nudity is not required or pressed or expected. Um, so that really depends on the club you're working on. And also uh, the $53, I'm like, is that after you tip in to work or not? Because strippers have to pay to dance at the club. Um, so basically what it, how that kind of works. And I don't know if, Mac, if you get into this later, you can shut me up. At least from my knowledge of having having a friend who is a stripper, um, you have depending on what time you show up, you have to pay the club to dance. So if you show up at like 
six o'clock, maybe that tip-in is like 30 or $40. But if the later you show up, the bigger your tip-in is going to be. So if you don't show up until like midnight or something, you might be paying $80 to dance. And the, the theory behind it is that you basically will make that money back. So it's like it's advantageous of you to show up earlier and not pay as much money, but then you're spending more time at the club and your hours are longer. And it, it just, you know, it's a gamble. And that's why strippers need to be unionized, in my opinion. Um, anyways, so I'm like, okay, but is this 53 before or after she had to tip in? And Criminal Minds is probably like, what? Um, so the, the siblings talk about how they need to eat, but it also sounds like they have a younger sister, Alicia, who's out with a friend. Uh, the brother references the stuffed animal that was left in the older sister Connie's car. And he's like, you got your yearly gift. And apparently he was also left a gift too. It looks like one of those like batons, like those like twirling kind of batons. Yeah, but there's a liquid or something in it, which made I was like, that looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it was fun. And um, apparently that was left on his their front porch, so spooky. And these are their 20th anniversary gifts. Back at the BAU, Prentice and her not-as-flattering haircut are in Rossi's office. Um, there are a lot of papers that are strewn around the office, which is super out of character for him. And Garcia spills the beans and says that he's in Indianapolis. Wow, I said that's so weird. Indianapolis. Um, and they take the jet to meet him. So basically, Rossi is upset because the local authorities stop stop searching the case. And he's like, it's been 20 years. But apparently the house is completely empty. We learned that Rossi fucking owns the house. That I was so blown when I heard that. I was like, oh, my God. Uh, he bought it at an auction, I believe it was two weeks after the initial murder, and he admits to having gotten very attached to the kids, despite not having any sort of personal or, like, familial connection with them. So, the rest of the team is on the jet. Hey, girl. And they're talking about how they are not able to find very much on this file, either. Murder weapon was a long axe, um, and they also realized that this was not actually like an FBI case. Rossi calls Garcia because she was running more fingerprints on the case and Garcia tells Rossi that they found his uh, office in disarray so they are worried despite him being unbothered. He's upset when she spills that they are coming to see him but you know it could be a lot worse Rossi like situate oh no they're coming to help you oh no. Poor you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> also i think this is where jen should butt in with part of her thing yeah okay so everybody is on the rossi thing except for reed and hotch because they're headed to do one of their custodial interviews with a death row serial killer They are doing this custodial interview because uh, the inmate is set to be executed next week, um, and he requested to talk to them. The serial killer's name is Chester Hardwick, which I think is a really cool serial killer name. Uh, (laughs) 
And it's unclear at first, like, what what his deal was. Um, and even the, I think it's this, I think they said he was, like, the assistant warden. Yeah. Oh, he's so obnoxious. Yeah, he is. He's so, yeah. He's, like, I, he had the files or whatever um, for Reed and Hotch. And they're, like, we don't we don't really need those like we already we already know because i guess they like after hardwick made the request to talk to them they like make sure to do like a comprehensive um profile so they talk to everybody that they can that knew hardwick um so they already talked to like his mom and other family members that they could find um so they kind of like already know everything that they could possibly know about him so he makes this request for the interview and I don't, I guess I don't know why, because he didn't seem that interested in like being glorified um, after he dies or whatever. So they go there and Reed is very scared, um, very nervous. So I'm not sure they never make it clear exactly what he did, um, but he killed like like 23 people or something. The police are like, oh, I'm assuming like the chains or whatever that Hardwick has should stay on. And Hodge is like, that won't be necessary. And Reed's like, um, I think it is necessary. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of where they're at with that one. Um, but they take, they do take the chains off, though. Yeah, they do. They do take them off. And Reed's like, what the fuck? The rest of the team crashes a date Rossi is having with himself at a fancy bar. He tells them to go home, even though they're offering to help. And JJ even offers to make this an official BAU case because she has that power. He talks about how um, he, uh, how this uh, murderer knew that the kids were in the house, but chose not to, quote, eliminate them. So there was only one good print on the inside of the bedroom door, um, but it, it's a very confusing case because he this unsub seems both how both somehow both organized and disorganized at the same time. So we cut and we see Alicia, the younger sister of the three, making out with some guy in a jeep. Um, Alicia and her older sister Connie have a bit of a spat, and then Rossi shows up with the rest of the team. But Connie tells him off. She tells him to go away. Apparently, they want to be left alone. And so he, like, super detectively says, I'll leave you kids alone, which is so sad. Because you can see how much he cares about them. And then she adds, and you'll stop with the gifts, too. To which he, like, slowly turns around and is like, gifts? And she goes on to be like, they remind us of the worst year of our lives. Why are you doing this? And he's like, I've never sent you any gifts. The, the team is like, they're like, well, someone's obviously sending these. And they, they've been getting them every year since 20 years. So Prentice clocks how these gifts are like really cheap. And how apparently they would show up on the porch or in the car. So this person is stalking them. Morgan, who, you know, has expertise in obsessional crimes says that usually obsessional crimes are one of two kinds 
sadists who want to make the families relive these crimes or, quote, guilt-laden offenders desperately trying to find some type of way to apologize. Additionally, they usually use something they know will remind the family of the crime, so like jewelry, newspaper clippings, etc. But in this case, these gifts don't look like they are trying to inflict pain, so they surmise it is a guilt-laden case. Then Prentice points out that they are actually look like something a child would send. Uh, they make a comparison to uh, maybe this unsub being like Lenny from Mice and Men. <laughs> Which I was just kind of like, wow, we're going to really be pulling the Steinbeck out for this. <laughs> Cracking open the, 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 <laughs> the novel. Yeah, oh, so... So, like, maybe this person was assisted by a parent or someone because there was still no evidence despite the unsub potentially being kind of childlike. So Morgan tells them to call Garcia and look for other cases, not a murder case that involves children's parks, playgrounds involving children but not murdered or abused, an adult who wants to play with children, someone who's an intellectual match. Okay, so cut back to... Hotch and Reed, and they've started the interview with Hardwick, and Hardwick is playing games. He's like, oh, I had, like, a normal childhood and grew up on a street that was, like, normal, and, like, everything about me is normal. And then Hotch is like, cut the crap. We know that you didn't have a normal life. I don't know. I just, the interview just seems sort of ridiculous. Yeah, it it is a little ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, So then, uh, you know, like as serial killers do, he actually had a really shitty childhood and his dad beat him and his mom like every single day and, you know, like normal serial killer stuff. And like, let's not forget that we learned in season one or I think it was season one that like, Hotch had an abusive childhood, too. So, like, this whole thing where, like, once again, we keep implying that just because you were abused, you're going to then, like, in effect, abuse is, like, so not true because we have the shining example. But that's not, like, circled back to enough, I feel like. And so they, like, go through a few more things about Hardwick's life and they don't really get anywhere with it. He just kind of gets everything down, like, this is what I did and like he never he never like really explains you know kind of the why behind it which is probably what they're looking for a little bit but um you know Hotch decides like okay like we've gotten everything that we're going to get out of this interview so we're done and Reed goes to like bang on the door so that the guards will uh come and get Hardwick so that they can leave and Hardwick is like, it's 517. Nobody will be here for another 13 minutes. And then he looks down. And then he looks down on at this, like, brutal murder scene. And he's like, and it only took me five minutes to do this. <laughs> and Reed's like, oh, my God. So Reed, Reed is, like, shitting his pants right now. And Hotch, Hotch is like... What do you like? You're not gonna kill us. Like, <laughs> what are you gonna do? We'll just sit here and wait for 13 minutes. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, that's kind of where it leads off, because he's like... Wait, H- Hotch is about to throw some hands, though. Yeah, he like... He's like, he, he like, takes his shirt off. <laughs> he takes his jacket off and loosens his tie, and I'm like, okay, daddy. All right, daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Wait, and, and, and Rita's like, wait, 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 wait. Uh, I know why you did those things. Like, or he says something like that. Yeah, yeah, he's like, do you want to know why you did what you did? And then... um. Like Hardwick, or Hardwick is talking about how like he's gonna like they'll never execute me after I kill two FBI agents or whatever, and then that's when Reed cuts in with the like, oh well I know what you did, like why you did what you did, and then that's when it cuts back to the Rousey stuff. So Garcia calls back and things are weird. She says there's a, quote, scad of cases related to this criteria. But the thing is, it was always in the last week of March or the first week of April. Travels across the country in two-week bursts, a specific schedule. And then Rossi is like, they're, they're kind of like, what could this be? Is this man traveling? And then Rossi is like, a carnival! You see, like, he's, like, thinking about the gifts, and you see, like, these interspersed images of, like, gifts at carnivals and, like, the carnival music, and he's like, by God, it's a carnival. Uh, They're like, a carnival, and apparently the family went to a carnival the day before they were murdered. Kind of seems like an important thing to, like, mention. I know they were children, but, like, that's, that's, like, that just, but isn't that, like, the first thing you do is, like, what have you done recently? And then the kids were just, like, uh, like, no, it was never mentioned, and they never thought to mention it. I'm just, like, this is insane. And then they're, like, a clown was following them and made them some shitty balloon animals. Stop. Stop! You wouldn't think that that would be important? Oh my god. Or like, I'm sorry, but like the carnival was definitely like still in town when the murders happened. And like Rossi was there and he didn't think to... uh, But I'm not trying to imply that like carnival folks are shady or do this. I'm just like, this is an important piece of the puzzle. And you're really saying in 20 years, they didn't mention this to the police? It it was, this is when I was really, this episode really just started sending me. We're at the point where, like, Reed is improvising, Hotch is ready to, like, throw down, and Reed is, like, giving this long monologue about, like, okay, so this happened in your childhood, so, like, this is why, like, this is your behavior, and, like, this is why you targeted these certain people, and he just goes on and on and on and on. The punchline is, like, that 13 minutes is up and Hardwick is, like, so invested in what Reed has to say about him. And (laughs) eventually, like, the officers show up to, like, take him back to his cell. And as he's walking out, he's like, so is that why I did all those things? And Reed's like, I don't know. And he's like, oh, <laughs> god darn it. The yeah. FBI done fooled me fooled twice. Me twice. <laughs> if you fool me again, then I won't be fooled twice. <laughs> so then that's kind of the end of it. I feel like it was... I don't... <laughs> like, the the point of it was null. Like, there wasn't one. Um, but I, I thought it was kind of funny. Um, but anyway, they're on their way uh, to join 
the rest of the team now. And Reed is like noticing that something is wrong with Hotch. Um, Cause he was like, you were literally about to fight a serial killer. <laughs> like what is wrong with you? Alright, so the BAU team looks up uh, the carnival and finds them, like, taking their shit down. Like, I guess they were in town, they're starting to pack up. So the FBI swarms this carnival, and all the workers are packing up, and then... And then Rossi... (laughs) Rossi utters the singular best slide in television history, which is the... Where are you headed next? Springfield? We'd like to talk to you about one of your clowns. (laughs) And the guy working there is like, we don't have clowns. Clowns are for the circus. (laughs) And I was like, damn, we're we're gatekeeping the clowns. So then they press him and he's saying how, you know, like maybe you have a balloon animal making fella. But, like, so they start pressing him, and, like, once they do that, he cracks so fast. And basically, he admits to that, like, he and the clown (laughs) broke into the fucking house because the clown took a liking to Connie and wanted to see her again. But then, like, the dad came in with the axe because, uh, obviously, and then shit went down. The owner of the circus is the clown's brother. Dad? Oh, yeah, you're right. It is his dad. And so the clown broke into the house and then did the murders and then was like, I made a boo-boo. And then daddy, daddy, daddy Carnival was like, I will, I will fix this. But he did not help him commit the murders. And it's sad because the, the clown is mentally troubled yeah yeah he's mentally troubled he's got mental illness um so morgan and jj find the clown they kind of have to like chase him around and it like this went it went for me like kind of cackling at like how absurd this was to like being very sad very quickly because he's just very like i don't mean to say pathetic in like a negative way but he is kind of like he just like I don't hours. know. Like he, he's very yeah. helpless. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, and he's like calling for his. He's like, daddy, daddy. Like, where are you? Like, and it's really, really sad because it's like he literally just needed help. Like, it's it's awful, and they like apprehend him, and I'm like, this is so wrong. Um. So, but the episode ends with Rossi giving the children the ownership, like their ownership of the house back, and he says. Like, you know, I, you know, I got it for you. It's been maintained. There's been a housekeeper. Like, you should have this house. And then he also gives them the keychain from the beginning. And apparently their grandmother had let him keep it. And they're like, you know, hold on to it until, you know, you you find him. Like, whoever did this. And they, he gives it to them. And they're like, no, no, no. Like, you should keep it. Which I just thought was really sweet and sad. God. Uh uh should i should i do my deep dive did you you did a little yeah. deep dive, Abby, or you have something uh you can go first okay okay so um i'm i'm doing a deep dive just an overview of some things about strippers because we've had a lot of misrepresentation in this show 
Um, and we do hope to have like the next time we have an episode where we have um, strippers being like treated this way, we are looking to have a guest on who is a stripper. Has stripping yeah. experience. Yeah. yeah. So um, I just did a little, a first thing I was like, how much strippers make on average? And I'm, am I making more or less than that? Well, I'm making less than that. Uh, it looks like it's between like, Fifth, uh, fifty-four to fifty-seven thousand a year. Uh, hourly, it's t- between twenty-one and thirty-two dollars. That's from like ZipRecruiter, Simply Hired, and Salary.com. I also wanted to take a look at because we always hear that like it's and it's not just strippers. It's also like people who are like portrayed to be sex workers. Um, I'm forgetting what other kind of things like, but it's usually like strippers and sex workers that are like, oh, it's so dangerous. And those things are completely different. But like a lot of times they're lumped in together into this category, which is not fair. Um, So I just went through and I found some alarming statistics about jobs that are more dangerous than being a stripper. And I just wanted to share so we're going to count down 10, like from least to most dangerous. And I've got 10. So um, lo- landscaping, lawn service, and groundskeeping workers out of 100,000 workers, um, fatal injuries were 20.2%. We have construction workers um, out of 100,000 workers. That's 21% with fatal injuries. Structural iron and steel workers, 23.6% of fatal injuries. Farmers, ranchers, and agricultural workers at 24.7%. Drivers, truck drivers, people who work in that industry, 26%. Refuse and recyclable material collectors, 44.3%. And now we're getting into like very scary numbers. Roofers, out of 100,000 roofers, uh, fatal injuries, 51.5%. So that's half. Oh, wow. Wait, so one in every two roofers die on the job? Is that? Well, out of those who have injuries, those the ones that are fatal are 50%. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Aircraft pilots and flight engineers, so people who actually, like, work on the planes, out of 100,000 injuries, 58% of them were fatal. Fishers and related fishing workers, 77.4%. And the top category, can you guess what this category is? I was like, of course it is, but I forgot. Is it like garbage workers? No, we had we, we had those things? ones. Yeah, oh. this is electrical. No, logging, logging, logging. That makes logging sense. out of a hundred thousand injuries, ninety-seven point six of them were <gasps> fatal. Ninety-seven point six percent of them. So, I, again, this is CNBC. This I think this was like twenty eighteen. You can look at the stuff yourself and make those judgments. This is just one site. But uh, if if you work in logging, 
might want to consider a new occupation because if you get injured on the job, the likelihood that it's a fatal injury, well, you got to think like the, the, the pounds of wood that they're dealing with. Uh, do you have a, a thing that you would like to tell your listeners, Abby? Oh my God. Okay. So um, I don't even know how to introduce this. So we're gonna we're gonna start this by saying, um, I used to love clowns when I was a kid. I was like the opposite of the people who were afraid. I did have a clown birthday party when I was little in Sunshine. The clown came in our backyard and did like a balloon animal demonstration and face paint. Uh, so there are photos of me as my clown costume for my clown birthday party and i would regularly wear my clown onesie as a kid out to the grocery store with my mom and stuff um i love clowns but i also have studied clowning uh in theater school (laughs) and it's actually a very difficult not difficult but it is a very involved thing because there are different styles of clowning um, there is like, you know, the really, uh, you know, stylized Italian Commedia, del- Commedia dell'arte, um, which is, you know, there's different archetypes that you play. There's different characters within Commedia dell'arte and those characters and like their different motivations. There's the one who's like really motivated by money. So everything he does is about money. Then there's like the lovers who are like not exactly clowns. And then there's like the Zani, I think is like the, um the servant who's like usually the protagonist. So I've done many clown workshops. I was in a clown production of Hamlet. Basically what I wanted to say about this, I feel weird about how our unsub in this was a developmentally challenged clown. That doesn't seem like a very appropriate kind of role to put that person in because clowning is very it feels I don't know it feels very degrading (laughs) that they put that character there um because that's making it feels like it's kind of making fun of the fact that he's very childlike um especially because clowning is a very like sophisticated form of performance it's very challenging and it takes a lot of years of study um the thought behind it a lot of the time in theater is that all of us have our inner clown oh my god and um it can take years to develop your clown and your clown is like a very uh innocent like facet of who you are um, and usually your clown has a name and the intention behind it is that uh, your clown is kind of like a very, I'm probably going to get some of this wrong because it's been a minute, but um, it's kind of like uh, everything a clown experiences is like for the first time and clowns will often like fixate on one thing at a time and like it's very in front of you and clowning is also a lot of the art form of it is like I am looking at my water bottle. Now I look at the audience and I share that excitement with the audience. And now I'm back at the water bottle. I'm learning more about it. Oh my God, audience, do you see what I'm looking at? It's very intentional about like where your focus is and who you're communicating to. 
So that's my little bit about clowning. I love clowning. It's great. It's a lot of fun. It's very difficult, though. Overall thoughts about this episode, I guess? I really liked it. I will say overall, I mean, I do feel weird about the clown bit at the end just because he was a very developmentally challenged person. And that felt, um, that felt wrong. I I just, it's just sad. It's like this person needed help. And I I like that it like, it's, it's very, when, when we initially see Rossi, we know he's got ulterior motives and I feel like this really changed for him. And it was very like, I, I mean, the first episode that he was ever in, it was like, very like, I, you know, there's no I in team. And he was like, just kind of a one man show, but slowly over this season, he starts to like bring all the different, parts of the BAU, all the different members of the team into his life. And I feel like this episode, when the team comes through for him, because of course they would, he really has a new connection and kind of a new outlook on life. Like it's not shown to be dramatic like that, but like his character definitely shifts. It does definitely crack him wide open. Like he did have a really hard exterior and he was all about, you know, he was like very egotistical, I think prior to this episode and yeah I mean from here there's a huge shift I think he really embraces like the family aspect of the team after this and I don't know like from knowing how Rossi is later in the series to like seeing how he started out like that's a really big change so I really like that aspect of it And it it is crazy that they wrapped up everything about his case in like six minutes. That was wild. (laughs) That was like another part that I really, really didn't like because there's also like Garcia talks about how they saw like a string of other similar crimes like in all these different cities that the carnival was going to. And for the unsub to end up being like, who they were that really doesn't make sense to me um and like how how like insanely brutal the crime was it just feels really icky that not only were they like a clown but it was a person with mental illness like it just really does not match up with me at all like the expectations for the case and it's really it's really unsatisfying and we didn't mention that, like, um, the whole thing with the, pre- like, the stuffed animals and the presents is that, like... How did he get in her car? Yeah, I don't know. But, but, the whole thing is that he, like, his da- daddy Carnival makes him, like, every year remember what he did and makes him, like, give apology gifts. So they were, like, apology gifts. I don't know. I guess we'll see how we feel as we rate it. Yeah, let's rate it. All right, criminal slash serial killer. Uh, I don't know how to rate that. I mean, maybe we could circle back to it. Yeah, let's start with background characters. Let's work backwards. Okay, I like that. Uh, Who's the background? The kids. Yeah, the kids. I like the kids. They were great. They were great. I would... Well, okay, is the the serial killer also considered in the background characters? Because I thought he was really interesting, too. Chester? Yeah. Um, I mean, he could, I don't know. Because he wasn't technically, like, the serial killer of this episode. 
But either way, I think that they were good characters. So good with the high score for that one. Because you kind of got got what they were about, even though we just had a little bit of time with them. Do we want to give it a 20? Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. All right, script writing. As much as the interrogation scene was a little, like, why? The way they balanced it and, like, crafted it together, I thought was really well done. And I also, like, loved the moment where um, Prentice comes in in the morning and she sees Rossi's door open and the room's dark and you can just see that there's, like, a pile of papers on the floor. And just, like, the how ominous that is. I thought that was, like, a really nice nugget right there. There's a lot of, like, good one-liners in this episode, too. Like, and the awkwardness of Rossi showing up at Garcia's apartment. And then, like, how how freaked out Garcia is that she goes to JJ. And then JJ's like, yeah, like, I'm not busy or anything right now. Like, I can totally listen to your personal life. And, like, it's totally fine. And then she, like, blurts out that Rossi was at her apartment last night while she was sleeping with somebody. And JJ's like, okay, yeah, I want to hear about this. I don't know. We could give it a 20. Yeah, sure. Um, Forensics and context. It's a pretty short time to solve a crime. And I also really am I'm still stuck on the fact that like they no one ever mentioned the carnival in 20 years. Right. And they, right, because that file that they had, that's why Rossi was so mad. It's like they had so little to go off of. He's like, how is that possible? So I, I think a lot of it was like grasping at straws, but it did only take Garcia to put together like, oh, these similar things have happened in other cities across the Midwest or whatever. Yeah, it's a little wild that's taken 20 years. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was just, like, there wasn't enough attention. But that doesn't make any sense for, like, a white suburban family to, like, not get police attention. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Like, maybe a 10. I don't know if it's better than that. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's a 10. Character development, character arcs. I feel like they should get a high score. A lot for Rossi. And then, like, Hotch finally admits that, like, Haley is like wanting a no contest divorce and he's like not okay with that. Yeah, I think we could do a 20 and then take off points for the the unsub. Yeah, I really have a hard time with this unsub. Part of me just wants to give it a 10, like just a in the middle kind of score because because it's really not a it's like not a fair unsub at all. I think the way that they're depicted is just really not okay at all. I don't, I'm okay with a 10, because then it would get an 80, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's, yeah. Are you all right with that, Jen? Yeah. Well, you, you can follow us of podcast on all of the things and and yeah <laughs> I don't know oh uh, we got merch we got shirts we got mugs we got everything to your heart's content and you can follow me your new apartment.tumblr.com um, and you can find me at um, in between stage and screen podcast on Instagram and on all the
still on Instagram. Well, thanks so much for listening, y'all. And yes, we'll catch you on the flip side. <laughs>